Nahum chapter 3, and, and the conclusion to Nahum is verses 18 and 19. And it ends with this question. Look, look at verse 18. Nahum writes, your, your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles shall dwell in the dust. Your people are scattered upon the mountains. No man gathereth them. There is no healing of all your bruise. Your wounds are grievous. And all that hear the report, the bruit is the report. That's a weird old word. I actually had to look up that word. I thought I have not come across that word ever that I remember. Of course, I've read through names, so I must have missed it. But I went, I'm going to look up that word. It means report or news. Who the, all that hear the report of you shall clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Since the Victorians, this is a reference to Queen Victoria of England. She, was, she lived 1819 to 1901. Since the Victorians, Western culture has been fascinated by the idea of God's love to the detriments of his other attributes, namely his holiness and his justice. Some have pushed back against this argument claiming that God's holiness is his chief attribute above all others. In fact, I've been to ordination councils where they will ask the young man, uh, they'll say something like, what is the chief attribute of God? And then if he doesn't answer with holiness, then there's kind of murmuring amongst the, the men there, and then they say it's the holiness of God. But I think that argument actually undermines the doctrine of God. God's attributes are as they are, he is holy. He is also loving. He's compassionate and he's just. And so I would say no attribute of God supersedes any other attribute of God. This is who God is. And, and so you find in the Victorian age, God's love trumping his other attributes. And by the way, this was in the preaching of one D.L. Moody, lived 1837 to 1899. So just kind of overlapping the Victorian uh, uh, era, and he states that his evangelism ministry became truly effective. He really found a, a significant change in his ministry when he began preaching primarily on the love of God. So it's no wonder that during the time right after Moody, at the, the tail end of the Victorian era, Bible scholars began to question the point of Nahum's prophecy. That God here depicted as a divine warrior would destroy Assyria because of her crimes against humanity, because that's really what you have going on here. And at the time of the prophecy, Assyria is the most powerful nation in the world, a kind of ancient superpower, if you will. And Nam states that though they were powerful, God is much more powerful. He is this righteous warrior, vengeful, wrathful, supreme over nature and all-powerful. And let me ask you this. How common is preaching in our time that highlights the vengeful, wrathful justice of God? That's not very common. The prophecy also emphasizes the justice of God, that he protects those who trust in him and destroys those who reject him. Thus, the fall of the wicked is inevitable because God's will is invincible. So as great as man can be, 
God's greatness is much greater still. He's, he's much greater than anything man can devise. And you think about the arrogance of the Ninevites and the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal. God taunts him that his nation will be eaten up like a prey animal, like, like you're just a little rabbit. And your nation is going to be eaten. The nation will be murdered like a helpless victim shamed, conquered like Thebes was conquered. and It will be helpless to defend itself against the onslaught of its enemies. The city will be spoiled and the great men and women of renown will be marched out of her through her gates in slavers' chains. So the scholars look at that and they ask, how does that fit into the picture of an all-loving God? Well, the balance of God's love along with his justice is one of the more difficult aspects of theology. But if you think about it, isn't God showing love in overthrowing this city and these people? Stop for a moment and think about all the people who've been harmed by the Ninevites, who've been conquered by the Assyrians. What are the thousands of people that the Ninevites killed or injured? What of the children of those families who were slaughtered by its armies? And what of the poor and the oppressed? The balance of God's justice with his love requires him to respond to oppression. And so in that vein, Nahum is God's warning to this pagan king and to her king, his kingdom, warning Nineveh of a coming judgment. Now from today's perspective, Nineveh's gone. It's nowhere to be found. It's, it's in ashes. It might seem to be obvious that this judgment was coming, that Nahum's prophecy was legitimate. But remember, as I mentioned just a moment ago, at the time it was written, this did not seem to be obvious because Assyria is the lone superpower on the earth. And, and forgive me if I'm overlooking any powers in China or India. There were superpowers there, but... The Bible doesn't really look beyond kind of that, that middle portion of the East. You have Europe and you have West Asia, the Middle East. That's kind of the Bible's purview. So there are other superpowers, by the way, the Chinese dynasties, the Indian dynasties, but you don't find those mentioned in Scripture. And so while those were powerful too, Assyria is the most powerful. They are more powerful than the Greeks, the Jews, the Philistines, more powerful than the Medes and the Babylonians, although the Babylonians are still pretty young in terms of world history at this point. And it would take an alliance of the Babylonians and the Medes to take down Assyria, and then the Medes and the Persians would later take down the Babylonians. Now what I want to do for a moment is just show you some slides, because these slides give you an, an idea in your mind of, of who... Ashurbanipal thought he was and what he thought of his own kingdom. So we, can we show some slides here? Are they? <coughs> We're having a technical difficulties. Okay. All right. That's going to mess everything up now. I'm completely, I'm stymied. I don't know where to put that in my sermon. You guys will have forgive me. You know, you at the wilds a week ago and they had a song being sung and apparently the guy conducting the song and the person running the AV got off. And so 
the wrong words were up on the screen, and then that problem. Fell apart. And and then lo and behold, we have that problem. No, I, I'm just let's just all take a breather. This is unusual, but let's all take a breather here in the middle of the sermon and just wait for this to come up because I want you to see these. These are really important. Ashurbanipal is a very powerful man. By the way, you're going to find in these slides. Um, these are the majority of these objects are actually in the British Museum. If you went to London, you could walk into the British Museum and see these actual things. They have been taken, uh, middle 1800s, taken from uh, that region, what was Assyria, Ninevites, that would have been uh, you know, Persia, uh, been taken from there and taken to, uh, or Iran rather, and taken to uh, London. How, how close are we? The computer's having trouble? All right, well, we'll come back to that. Ashurbanipal considered himself to be a powerful leader. His, his reliefs from his palace, which you would have just seen had you seen them, it, it was flooded and then destroyed. And it depicts him as this hunter-warrior who hunted lions and ruled a powerful nation. Now, I want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to think about who the Assyrians think that they are. We have the strongest military in the world. This, this is the Assyrians talking. This is 700s BC. We have the strongest military in the world. We also have on top of that, the greatest economy in the world. And then on top of that, we have the center of all the arts and culture in the known world. There's actually in Nineveh, a library with more than 30,000 clay tablets. It's, it's written in Akkadian. Uh, the language, it looks like a chicken got a hold of some clay and just started, you know. But, but, but for those who know Akkadian, they can read this, probably not easily, but they can read this and tell you what's actually being said. There are some interviews you can find online of people who can read Akkadian and actually are translating what these things have said. It's really quite fascinating. So I want you to stop for a moment. And remember, we started this, this series of messages talking about how uh, um, the God that Nahum is describing is not America's God. Now, let's look at the... Can we, can we do it now? Are we good? Still no? All right, we're going to can that. We'll do it another time. Just, just let it go, turn on the lights, and we'll just forget it. Ashurbanipal, if you think about it, if you think about what he had, military might, economic strengths, the economic strength and the arts and culture hub of the world, doesn't that sound pretty familiar to you? Does that seem like somewhere you know of in this world? And yet Nahum is being written and he's saying to them, because of your wickedness, I am going to end you. And this is what God promises. This is point number one. God promises to end the Assyrian nation. Her government is emptied of its qualified leaders. Look at verse 18. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. So it's directed to Ashurbanipal. Your kingdom, your shepherds are sleeping, and your nobles are in the dust. Now, Nahum refers to these governmental leaders as shepherds and nobles. And the shepherds, this is a metaphor, I think, for those who lead the people about, just like a herdsman has his little staff and he's leading around a flock of sheep. Or you have the nobles. These are the majestic houses of the nation. And you think of the great houses of Europe, 
uh, the great, we don't really have them so much in the United States, but the great houses of Europe were things like uh, the Windsors and the Hanovers and the Savoys or the Edwards of Scotland, uh, the, even the House of Bonaparte in France. You had these, these uh, families that were of great nobility and renown. These, he says, are unable to protect the city because they are asleep. And this can refer to actual sleeping. Dwelling in the dust might just mean to lie down. But I think actually what he's saying here is they're dead. So he's using this idea of a metaphor for asleep to mean they are no longer alive. And in this case, the leaders of the city are incapable of protecting the city because they're not around. They're gone. And because of this, there are no leaders who can lead. So if you think about what God's doing is, after all of these taunts that he's just given, of all the things he's going to do for them, he says, here's what happens to you. Your, your government goes away because all the leaders that you're depending on to run, to function this nation, will be gone. Even worse, your people then will be scattered. I think he's talking here about the self-interest or the self-centeredness of, of the people of Assyria. They're incurably self-centered. He says, your people are scattered on the mountains and no man can gather you back. Nobody can gather you back. So there's a leadership of, a vacuum of leadership along with these attacking forces. If you can imagine, you have an army. He talks about the flash of the sword and shield and spear. There's these chariots that are kind of going here and there, he said, through the city. And, and people are dying in heaps. Nobody is ruling any longer. Nobody's in charge. This kingdom is crumbling. And so what do the people do? What would you do? If somebody's attacking your city in this sense, what would you do? And they run. They run. The vacuum of leadership causes the people to scatter like sheep from a predator. And I have in my mind this image. It, just here, I'll put my mind, my thought bubble up on the screen, okay? Here's my, here's my mental image, all right? In my mind, I have this image of a black wolf kind of creeping out of the forest. And you have all these sheep, and then one of the sheep sees that wolf, and then boom, they bolt. And now that wolf is going around trying to catch a sheep. And those sheep are running and sprinting and running away for their lives. This is kind of like what he's talking about here. So he's comparing them to, to a sheep running from predators and because there's no shepherd. There's nobody with a staff to protect those sheep. They're now governed entirely by their self-interest. They're now being controlled entirely by what, what's best for them. So in that sense, the nation becomes untenable. There are no Assyrians anymore. They're scattered. And, and the word here to be scattered is just spread out across the countryside. So the destruction of the city then, I think, is permanent. He says nobody can gather them back again. That when the shepherds are dead, the sheep will now flee for good. There's no longer an Assyrian flock. And with that in mind, then, look at verse 19. The nation becomes irretrievably broken. There is no healing of your bruise. The wound is grievous. It's like a diagnosis 
in a hospital. The patient, that's Assyria, has this incurable disease, an incurable sore. The bruise is like a fractured bone. Compared, uh, this word is sometimes used for breaking pottery or breaching a wall. It's a fracture. It cannot be changed. The wound is like an injury from a beating. He says, he says, you're healing, no healing of your bruise. Your wound is grievous. In fact, the words no healing, that's the beginning of the Hebrew sentence there. So you have a patient now in a hospital bed and the patient is dying and it's incurable. Hospice has been called in. This is not going to end with this guy getting up off of this bed and walking again and going about life again. This person is dying. That's the depiction that God is giving of Assyria. The patient is just waiting to die. So the city, he says, will be wiped out. And I want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to realize how incredible this is. Two thoughts. Number one, after Nineveh is destroyed, its destruction is so complete that until the 1840s or 50s, 54 maybe, 1854, it is believed by scholars to have never existed. That's fascinating. And you say, well, of course, it was in 700 BC. Can I stop for a moment and point out other cities of antiquity that are still around? Anybody ever been to Roma? Who's been to Rome? Anybody? I've been to Rome. Roma. You find out it's called Roma. Sounds like a smell, doesn't it? It was really disappointing. Rome sounds so masculine. Roma sounds... I don't know. I was, I'm, you drive up, or I was in a train, and just went, Roma? Okay. I mean, they can call it whatever they want, but, mm. but Rome still exists. You, you can go into Rome, and you can go down to and look at the Arch of Titus. And you can look at this arch, and they actually have depicted on the arch the, the Romans carrying the treasures out of Jerusalem on that arch. You can see there's a whole bunch of these, you know, the marble statues of the, the women or men with their missing heads and arms, you know, uh, an alien race, if that's all they saw, would think were people with no heads and arms. I mean, that's, I don't know if the marble just isn't strong enough for to last the centuries, but they're missing those parts. But you can see them. They're just kind of littered and dotted across the countryside as you walk through Rome. You, you can see some of these things that go back before the time of Christ as you walk through Rome. Rome's still around. Jerusalem's still around. You can stand in Jerusalem where David stood. Stop for a moment and think about that. Now, you have to be Muslim because you can't get into uh, uh, the Dome of the Rock. Uh, they don't just let you in, I think, uh, tourists. But, but that, that's the place where the ancient temple was. You, you, can, you can stand there at a place where Abraham was with his son Isaac. That's, that's how far back that goes. Now, the Jebusites that, that David conquered and then establishes his city there, that's, that's hundreds of years before we have the Assyrians. But he establishes Jerusalem. He writes about Jerusalem. Even after Jerusalem is destroyed, there are still people there. And you think about Jerusalem still exists. Athens still exists. You go to Athens and you can look up and you can see uh, uh, the Agora and all the things that go on. The, the, one of the um, 
uh, incredible wonders of the ancient world. You can see those things that are there. And you can look at all of that. Uh, understand, Nineveh's gone. Rome, Jerusalem, Athens, still around. What, what am I trying to convey to you? This is how thorough Nineveh is destroyed. You can't just go to Nineveh. Until, until the mid-19th century, you just couldn't visit. It wasn't around. It was buried under the dirt. And that's what God says he's going to do. And then that should lead you to think one more thing. How grievous was her wound? How awful is this nation? Rome is terrible. The Greeks weren't that great. And there are times in Jerusalem when you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those are almost depressing books. You read it how sinful the people were, as bad as they were. Do you know there's only a handful of places where God so thoroughly destroyed them you can't find them? Nineveh was one, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, to me, there's the comparison. So this is how much God says, I will end your kingdom. And then it makes me think to myself, can you imagine 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries 2,000 years from now, could you imagine a world where people did not believe there was a United States? Can you imagine? You say, that, that's impossible. We have the internet. I mean, you look at a map. I mean, unless, unless you had no education at all, you would, you would know. Well, that's us today. That's, that's Assyrian thinking. That's Ashurbanipal's thinking. God can do what he wants. And he could so bury our country if he chose to. He could so bury our country that it would be thousands of years before anybody would find that he was even here. It's that amazing. With that in mind, then, the question is, is God justified in doing this? Now, this is, we go back to the, remember at the beginning, I, I, I mentioned in the Victorian era, Scholars were looking at this book and going, this doesn't belong in the Bible. This shouldn't even be here. This is not a loving God. This is not God loving people. This is something completely different. But I'm going to say to you, I think the results are justified. That's point number two. So, so if, you, if you're trying to keep an outline here, if you're trying to keep score, I had point number one, God promises to end the Assyrian nation. Her government is emptied of qualified leaders, letter A, letter B. Her people are incurably self-centered, letter C. The nation is irretrievably broken. This is the point number two, then. The results are justified. Other nations, you see here, rejoice over Nineveh's, Nineveh's, Nineveh's demise. It says, all that hear the report about you will clap their hands. And it, it strikes me, here we now have a universal expression for joy in the, starting in the ancient world, right? You clap your hands when something's good. You're at a ball game or somebody does something wonderful, or even a child gets up and recites a poem, and then everybody, you know, claps their hands, because it's, you know, this is good, this is joyful. The news about the Assyrians will travel throughout the ancient world. The victorious armies who conquered them will boast of their conquests and will etch it in stone, because that's what you do back then. The runners will take the news to other cities. You, you, you know the story of Marathon, right? And the guy who runs and, uh, however many miles and, and the Battle of Marathon, then he dies, and then for some reason, people think this is a great sport. We'll, we'll run the race that everybody dies at the end, and that's what they do. I don't do it just out of wisdom. So you have, you have runners. They're taking the news 
to boast of the conquest to other cities. In fact, back then they had what really sounds a whole lot like how we mailed letters in the Old West. They would have horse stations set up and people would ride horses and be able to take the news on down these royal roads. And then you have trade routes, the trade routes, the great trade routes going through Egypt uh, and North Africa, going through the Middle East. Th these were established for centuries before and this would be a place where people would get news in little hubs in these cities and the news would travel that way. And other nations would hear of this, but instead of being saddened, and in, in, in times, you know, when Jerusalem's destroyed, people, it said, would hang their heads and just wonder, what happened here? You know, how did this occur? Well, you know, then you'll know it was because God was angry because they were idolatrous. That's not what's going on here. People hear about this and instead of being saddened, they're excited. They're, they're rejoicing. They're clapping their hands like Psalm 47.1 or, or 98.8 or Isaiah 55.12 or even Ezekiel 25.6. Those, there are so many passages in the Old Testament talking about people enjoy clapping their hands. They're excited for what's happening. Israel is rejoicing, I think, the most of all the nations because Nahum, he's prophesying mid-7th century B.C. and by 612, Nineveh's gone. And everything he said now comes to pass in a most literal fashion, even to the point where he talks about the, the palace being flooded. And it, it seems likely that's one of the ways that the Babylonians and the Medes destroyed the city by rerouting the Tigris into the city. They flooded it, and the palace on the Tigris banks is destroyed by the water. Because God is pouring out his justice on the wicked. So their joy is the result of Assyria's wicked dealings with her neighbors. For whom hath your wickedness not passed continuously or continually? God declares the Assyrians to be evil. And I think they were evil in four very specific ways. From this little prophecy, you find they're evil morally. This is one of the most corrupt nations on the face of the earth in the ancient world. And again, I compare them to Sodom and Gomorrah. These are people with no moral compass. I want to stop for a second and tell you what I have heard over the last 48 hours from the news media is demonstrating how wicked our nation is. We, we just live in a really wicked country. I'm not saying we're worse than other countries. I don't know. I, I haven't, I'm not in a position to be able to compare. Uh, I read what the world leaders said about the Supreme Court decision on Friday. It was delivered on Friday. The people from Denmark and Belgium and France and Canada, and, and they seem to have the same feelings as people who are angry right now. And I, I look at that and I just go, we, we live in a very wicked country. I, I actually had a friend who I grew up with, whose dad was a preacher, asked the question on social media yesterday, shouldn't a woman have the right to make her own moral decisions? Uh, and so I responded, it, is that always true? He hasn't written back. I mean, do we let everybody just make their own moral decisions all the time? If we did, wouldn't we just have mass murder all the time? Wouldn't people just be stealing from one another? 
wouldn't people be brutalized? I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. But but he's just trying to toe the line. He doesn't want to come out and say, I'm against what happened. But he's certainly not for it. And I'm looking and saying, we live in a very wicked country. These people have no moral compass. The Assyrians are not just evil morally. They're evil economically. Do you know, do you know what's going on in Assyria? They would go in and raid these other countries. And the reason they raided them was they needed two things. They wanted slaves and they wanted possessions. So they would go in and they would destroy these city-states because that's kind of what you have there. They would destroy these city-states and they would take all the rich possessions. Either that or they would say, give me all your possessions. And if they thought you had more, then they would destroy you. But they were wicked economically. And at the same time, they had merchants. And apparently in this time, there were these business leaders and the business leaders were only interested in one thing, and that was enriching themselves. In fact, early in the prophecy, Nahum says, your merchants leave you. They just think they, they get out of town. They, they don't want to be in Nineveh anymore. It's going away. It's obviously doomed. We're going to go other places. And these are people who were evil economically. They're evil civilly. Nineveh is the nation, Assyria is the nation that invented crucifixion. They were trying to discover what is the way we can torture a person the most for the longest period of time before he dies, and that's what they came up with. These are horrible people. They, their, their depictions on some of the images, uh, and I didn't put these if we had seen them. I did not put these images up, but there are depictions of, of horrible acts of brutality. This is who the Assyrians were. They were cruel people to their enemies, and they were evil spiritually. I want you to stop for a moment and realize Jonah comes along about uh, 150, I think, years earlier. He comes along and he says, you need to repent or in seven days Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people do repent. Maybe not a revival in the sense that we think about when we think about spiritual revival, but clearly they turn and, and even the king comes off his throne, whatever it is at the time, not the Assyrian power that we're talking about now, but still clearly significant. He gets takes off his royal clothes, puts on... Uh, sackcloth, he put, gets, sits down in the ashes, and he repents. And God chooses not to destroy the Assyrians in Nineveh. But now, here all these years later, a pro, another prophet comes, and he gives a warning, and they reject that message. To the point where the, Nineveh, the Ninevite leader, the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, calls Manasseh from Jerusalem and says, come and answer for your prophet and for this book. And so when you think about, is God justified in what he's doing to these people, a people who are evil morally and economically and civilly and spiritually, I think the answer has to be yes. The, thus, the destruction of Nineveh is morally just. It is justifiable. And in that, I think, is where we have our greatest danger. Because we will not escape the justice of God here. I, I, I'm just telling you. I'm not giving it as a happy thing. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. And I'll probably get the doom and gloom lecture on the way home. You know, I get that sometimes. Oh, we're in different cars. I'm safe. Because she'll forget by the time we get to the house. I won't get the doom and gloom lecture. It's, Honey, you were doom and gloom tonight. You know, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm just telling you, God's justice is true. It is always righteous. And you just can't live this way and get away with it. This is what's coming. I'm not saying it'll be like this. I have no idea. I have no prophecy from the Lord. I'm just saying we cannot escape the justice of God. The justice of God is coming.
So how should we respond then to the story of Nahum, the prophecy of Nahum? And I have three ideas. Number one, I think we must, as believers, renew our commitment to praying for our nation. To really, truly pray that God will reach hearts with the gospel. Do you, do you know what the most patriotic thing in the world is? And this is point number two. Church planting. There's nothing more patriotic than church planting. And the reason I say that is because when you reach a, a community and you put another voice in that community to turn people away from sin and turn them to Christ, you're doing some most amazing things. My dad was in pol politics for 15 or 16 years, and he made friends with people in politics. And one gentleman was on the, the town council there in Greenville, South Carolina, and he later became the Secretary of State for the state of South Carolina. But while he was on town council, my dad led him to the Lord. And after that man got saved, he was truly changed. He was a different person. And here you had a man who was in politics. He was a businessman, I believe. But he was in politics, and he became the Secretary of State. And he went from an unsaved town councilman to a, a believing, truly changed person now holding the office of Secretary of State. I know that's not a major office in terms of state government, but, but it is something. And I'm saying that, that when, when you see people saved in your community, you are changing your country. And that leads me to my, my third idea. Christians need to have a better testimony in front of their community. I'm not saying that the answer is political. In fact, I would run from that answer almost exclusively. Uh, I have family members who would like us to be more political and my answer is no, that's not the answer. I don't think politics solves the problem. Uh, I think there can be good politicians like Daniel in a community, but I think the answer is having a personal testimony. We should have be moral and upright in our community. People ought to see us and know we love them and care about them as people, not that we make fun of them or want to humiliate them or that we're scared of them or run from them or embarrassed by them or ashamed to be even known to be around. We, we should have relationships with people that are redemptive. We have, we have some neighbors around us who are unbelievers, and they're living some of the most wicked lifestyle you can imagine. And, and we would love to have a redemptive relationship with them. We talk to them all the time. They're very friendly. Wonder, in fact, while we were gone, they were coming over. She was going to water our plants, and the next thing you know, she was cleaning off the cobwebs off our porch. I, what else can we get her to do, you know? It's just... This is wonderful. Sweet lady. Doesn't know the Lord. Man, reaching people like that, that's how you change things. So where is Asher Panabal today? Well, he's facing the judgment of God and awaiting final judgment in a lake of fire. Nineveh, his kingdom is gone, lost, even though recently discovered, it was also recently redestroyed. Uh, they rebuilt the walls of Nineveh from, from the ruins that were discovered 150 years ago, and then ISIS blew them up. So there you go. The culture is almost entirely lost. Do you know there's almost nothing of a Syrian culture remaining in the world? I mean, Greek and Roman culture are still here. They're here to stay. But uh, a Syrian culture is almost completely gone, except for maybe crucifixion. It's completely gone. And artifacts. All of its what treasures, where are they? Spread throughout the world in museums. Whatever is left of it, you can find in London and Paris and other places. But you're not going to find it 
in Assyria any longer because God destroyed it. God is greater than any king and he's greater than any kingdom. And he is a just and divine warrior and he will, he will hold people to an account. That has to be our understanding. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book. It's not